On Friday the 16th of February, Alexei Navalny died while going for a walk in the Siberian penal colony that he was being held in. We don't know the exact circumstances, but we do know the reality of the last three years of his life. Over 300 days in solitary confinement, freezing conditions with poor food and no medical treatment, complete separation from his family, and all this after he survived a nerve agent attack that nearly killed him. I wonder how you felt when you heard the news. I guess none of us were that surprised, given the lawless brutality of Putin's evil regime, but I still found that it affected me. Ever since watching Navalny's award-winning documentary, which powerfully exposed the lies and corruption of Putin, he has been a bit of a hero of mine. He was so courageous, so principled, so sacrificial. I admired him every time he came on TV from his prison cell, still laughing and joking despite the horrendous conditions he was being held in. He was a man who radiated justice and hope. Now I know that Navalny was not perfect. He was a complex character and certainly had flirtations with right-wing nationalism in his past, which I strongly disagree with. But who he became was someone utterly inspiring. A large part of this transformation came about from him taking up the Christian faith. I'd like to read some words from the closing statement at his trial in 2021, a trial that he knew he would never win. He said this, If you want, I'll talk to you about God and salvation. The fact is that I am a Christian, which usually rather sets me up as an example for constant ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation because mostly our people are atheists. And I was one once, quite a militant atheist. But now I am a believer. And that helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier. I think about things less. There are fewer dilemmas in my life because there is a book in which, in general, it is more or less clearly written what action to take in every situation. It's not always easy to follow this book, of course, but I'm actually trying and so, as I said, it's easier for me, probably, than for many others to engage in politics. Navalny then went on to quote the Bible, specifically the Beatitude passage from Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. I've always thought that this particular commandment is more or less an instruction to activity, Navalny continued. And so, while certainly not really enjoying the place where I am, I have no regrets about coming back or about what I'm doing. It's fine, because I did the right thing. On the contrary, I feel a real kind of, a real kind of satisfaction, because at some difficult moment, I did as required by the instructions and did not betray the commandment. That was Navalny's testimony while in a place of daunting interrogation, and it earned him so much respect. Joe Biden said this week, 
He was so many things that Putin was not. He was brave. He was principled. God bless Alexei Navalny. His courage will not be forgotten. And as I was thinking about this this week, I wondered if I would have the courage to be like Navalny. Of course, I like to think that I would, but I know the reality would probably be very different. I am much more like the Peter we find in this passage. Perhaps it's because I relate to him so much that as I read our Bible reading this week, I found myself feeling genuinely sorry for Peter. As we heard his interrogation session again this evening, I wonder if you felt the same. Of course, this is his infamous denial, the moment where he publicly let Jesus down, not just once, not just twice, but three times. But before we jump in on judgment, let us try and understand what led up to this point. The first thing that I'd like to say in Peter's defence is, at least he was there. At least he was there, as close as he could be to Jesus that night. I mean, come on, where were all the other disciples? I'll tell you where they were. They were already in hiding. They had scattered in fear the moment that Jesus was arrested. Peter, on the other hand, was loyal, really loyal. This is the man who in chapter 13 declared that he was so committed to Jesus, he would lay down his life for him. Peter had really meant that at the time. I'd also like to point out that Peter was there that night for the right reasons. He was there because over the course of the last three years, he'd come to correctly understand who Jesus is. He is the Lord, the Word of God, the Son of God, God's King and Messiah, the great I Am. Peter was there because he believed these things. He really believed them. But there was a problem with Peter's understanding. Throughout the Gospels, we see it again and again, that in his struggle to take things in, he'd only got Jesus half right. And sadly, that second half was about to badly let him down. Peter had correctly understood Jesus to be the Lord and Messiah, but he'd repeatedly failed to grasp how Jesus would operate as such. That Jesus had not come to win a military battle, but to claim his great victory through suffering and death. A moment ago, I mentioned Peter's great pronouncement that he would lay down his life for Jesus. He had never realised that in actual fact, Jesus was going to lay down his life for him. So Peter was loyal, really loyal, and he was a believer, but there were gaps and weaknesses in his life, as there are in all of us, and they were about to be rudely exposed. I want us to imagine the scene. It's dark, and it's cold, and your best friend has just been arrested by a gang of cutthroat soldiers. Your senses are scrambled, your emotions are all over the place, and then suddenly you yourself are put under intense pressure. Suddenly you are being interrogated. How would you have stood up to it? How would I? The first question came from a servant girl. Verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. The servant girl was curious and cautious. And notice how that led her to ask a very leading question. 
You aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? It's a question that implies and anticipates a negative answer. It was so easy for Peter to follow it and quickly say, no, I'm not. A few moments pass and Peter has moved over to the fire to keep himself warm. Also warming themselves by the fire are some Jewish officials and they turn towards Peter and ask him the same question. Verse 25, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Again, it's a negative leading question, so easy to follow and fall for. This is especially the case when we are surrounded by intimidating people, officials with the position and the power to make your life very difficult. In that moment, Peter must have felt very vulnerable by the fire. So again, he leaves the truth and denies knowing Jesus. Then straight away comes the third interrogating question. And this one comes from a very difficult source indeed. Do you remember how when Jesus was arrested, Peter had bravely but impetuously leapt in with his sword? He ended up cutting a man's ear off, a man called Malchus. Well, this person asking the question was there in the garden that night. He had seen what Peter did. This person was also a relative of Malchus, so no doubt he was furious about what had happened. Now, I know we all know this story. We know it really well. But I'd just like us to try and imagine again how Peter felt in that moment. The adrenaline that would have been coursing through him in the garden would have worn off by now. Instead, that stinging rebuke from Jesus would have been echoing in his ears. Peter, put your sword away this instant. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As Peter stood around that fire, I imagine he already felt guilty. Ashamed for getting it so wrong and making Jesus raise his voice. I imagine him seeing in his mind's eye the blood trickling down Malchus's face and maybe the hacked off earlobe on the floor. He must have felt sick with regret. And then to make matters worse, he gets asked this challenging question by a relative of the very man that he had harmed. Just what could he say? If he admitted to having been there, he would have been immediately arrested by those officials standing around the fire. And he'd have had a pretty good idea of what came next. So in total fear, paralysed by the panic, he lurches into lies again and once more denies knowing Jesus. He collapses under the interrogation. I wonder if we have ever crumbled under pressure. I wonder if we have ever told a lie to save face or taken evasive action to avoid a difficult situation. I know I have, all too recently. We all have. We want to think of ourselves as brave, but so often we're afraid. We want to think of ourselves as strong, but so often we are weak. We have the best of intentions, but we end up letting people down. Ourselves, others, and most importantly, God. We are all human. We are all like Peter. But here comes the great contrast in the gospel. When we are weak, Jesus is strong. When we let go, Jesus holds on. 
Jesus came to do all the things that we cannot do in order to rescue us from our weakness. Just look at how John has laid this passage out in the Bible. It's like he's deliberately highlighting the comparison. While Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything, Jesus stands up before his and denies nothing. Sandwiched between Peter's three denials come verses 19 to 24. This is the moment where Jesus is interrogated. Interrogated by Annas, the influential former high priest and father-in-law to the current high priest, Caiaphas. And while under interrogation, Jesus remains calm. He remains composed. His courage never wavers. The contrast to Peter could not be starker. As I read these powerful verses this week, three things jumped out to me. First of all, protection. In verse 19, it says that Jesus was questioned about his disciples. Now, when you think about it, that is still normal practice today. If the police capture someone they deem to be a terrorist leader, one of the first things they will want to know is, who are your associates? Do they have a strong following? How big is the threat of their group? Now they have the leader. How can the rest of the group be found and dealt with to take the threat off the streets? This is what is being asked of Jesus here. But notice how Jesus doesn't speak one word in answer to that question. He just will not give his friends up. Remember, Jesus promised his father that he would look after them and not lose them. And that promise required him to do the right thing now. So while Peter was outside looking after himself... Jesus, at this moment of great personal threat, was still protecting others. He was protecting his followers. The second thing that jumps out to me from Jesus' words is openness. Outside in the courtyard, Peter is doing his best to hide. Inside, Jesus speaks openly. Indeed, this is what he has always done. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always thought in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus came to reveal God, to make God known, to make his plans and purposes visible. He's lived his life like a light, a light shining out in the darkness, a light that cannot be hidden or overcome A light that has shown God plainly. Jesus probably suspected that Annas was going to accuse him of being a false prophet. To try and discredit him as someone who works to deceive or manipulate the people. But that accusation is just not going to stick. Jesus has always been open. Annas can call as many witnesses as he likes. They will tell him. And I think that Jesus was probably requesting a fair trial with that last remark. A trial with a proper judge and a proper structure and with proper witnesses being called for by the defence. But Annas and the officials were never going to let Jesus have that fair trial. Because deep down, they knew it would show them up. Jesus was completely open, but they had arrogance hidden in their hearts. So protection, openness... The third thing that jumped out to me from Jesus' words while under this fierce interrogation was truth. 
Annas and the religious officials are suddenly at an impasse. Again, they've utterly failed to catch Jesus out. So what do they do? They do what they always did. They resorted to violence. Violence always appears on the scene when people hard-heartedly reject God and his ways. And here, Jesus was struck sharply in the face. And it's in response to this that Jesus calmly speaks these words. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus declares that he has spoken the truth. Again, it's another great contrast to the lies that Peter was currently succumbing to outside. And truth is something that John has stressed right throughout his gospel. In his introduction, he wrote these words in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Later on, he recorded the words of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. And John has shown how the truth of Jesus' teaching has been backed up by seven miraculous signs. On top of that, Jesus predicted that Judas would betray him, and it happened exactly as he said it would. Literally every word that has left Jesus' mouth has been true, as has every action and every attribute of his character. Jesus is the truth. Of course, Jesus also stated that he would be put to death at the hands of the religious authorities. And that is well on its way to becoming true as well. So our passage sets up this stark contrast. Peter, weak, afraid, vulnerable, resorts to self-protection, secrecy and lies. Jesus, strong, calm, composed, protects others, speaks openly, and tells the truth, even though he knows it will lead to his death. And when we look at this contrast, we all know which one we are more like. We are all like Peter. The passage, of course, ends with the cock crowing, the great signal of failure. And the other Gospels tell us that Peter went out at this point and wept bitterly. He was devastated, utterly heartbroken at what he had done. But as we finish, I want us to remember something important. Jesus had said this exact thing would happen. Peter had protested at the time, but in John 13, 36 to 38, Jesus had made it plain. Let me read it to you. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. You see, Jesus really does know us better than we know ourselves. We just cannot hide our weakness, our sin, our insecurity from him. 
But the wonderfully good news of the gospel is that despite knowing us inside out, Jesus still loves us. He deeply, deeply loves us. He came to earth to forgive us. Still today, he wants to help us. And he truly sees what we can be in his strength. And again, Peter is the perfect example of this. Who was it that gave Peter his name? It was Jesus, wasn't it? Before meeting him, Peter was called Simon. Jesus gave Peter his name in John chapter 1. Andrew, Simon's brother, was one of the two who'd heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Jesus gave Peter his name and he gave it to him deliberately. The name Peter means rock. In this passage, that is the last thing that Peter was. He was not a rock at all. He did not stand firm when under pressure. But Jesus knew right from the start that one day he would be. Jesus never stopped seeing the potential in Peter. Despite all of his faults and failings, he kept reaching out to him and coaxing him along. Peter messed up in this passage, just like we all would have done in that situation. But the day was coming when he would be forgiven. More than that, the day was coming when he would be empowered and emboldened. Indeed, Peter was so transformed by the love of Jesus. By the end of his days, he was scared no more. And he did lay down his life for his Lord, just as he said he would. Despite his sin, Peter was loved and forgiven and transformed into a man for such courage, he became a martyr for his God. He set the pattern and the example that the likes of Alexei Navalny would follow all these years later. Peter is a shining example of what the gospel can achieve. And we'll find out more as we read on over the next few weeks. But now we must finish. But as we do, I want to ask that ever crucial question. How should we respond to what we've learned in this passage? If we are all like Peter... What should we do now? Well, rather than waiting for a cock to crow, let us humble ourselves now. Let us give up that pride and that arrogance and recognise that we're human and thereby we will make mistakes. None of us are as strong as we like to think we are. We all crack under pressure. We all fall into sin. And knowing that, let us turn to Jesus, the one who came to save us by giving up his life. And once we have done that, and trusting in his great love, let us set out to live for Jesus today. And let us try to do some of the things that we saw him do in this passage. Rather than hiding away, let us do what we can to protect others. Let us openly declare our love for the Lord. 
And let us speak the truth of the gospel to our needy community with every opportunity we get. God really can, through his spirit, make us a rock like Peter. He really can give us the courage of Alexei Navalny. But it only comes if we turn to Jesus and allow his strength to transform our weaknesses.